Hey, Jim, good to see you again. This is Tracy <laughs> at Little Things First. Good to see you, Tracy. Uh, this is Jim Martin with Little Things First, and we are going to be reaching out to Lucy Steiner today. Uh, she works for an organization called Public Impact that does a really cool thing uh, called Opportunity Culture. So we're going to learn a little bit about public impact and opportunity culture. That's Sounds perfect. exciting. Yeah, it's perfect. Okay, let's okay. see if she's ready. So Let's here, call. okay. Ring a ding a ding. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Lucy. This is Jim Martin. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. I see that you're calling from Ogden, Utah. Is that correct? <laughs> that's right. So um, I uh, record with Tracy, and that's where she resides. Got it. And Tracy's here with me now, and we're going to record as of now and just dive right in, if that's okay with you. That sounds great. And Tracy, you're could, uh, before we get started, could you just tell me just a little bit about the blog, about the podcast itself, and who you are, and just anything at all, that would be great for me to know a little bit more. Absolutely. So um, my name's Tracy Vandeventer, and I'm a principal currently uh, here in Ogden, and I have been working at Turnaround Schools, and currently I'm working at one that is a comprehensive school improvement school. We've been part, uh, or Jim and I actually know each other from other work that we've done as administrators with the University of Utah, or Virginia, UVA kind of Darden School of Business partnership, and um, yeah. and I think that's where both of us have had some exposure to you know public impact work and um, yeah and we're we're super excited and if you think about the podcast we we have been curious about what are the little things that make a big difference in schools knowing that uh, it doesn't always have to be sweeping reform you know to be able to help schools uh, make progress and we've been talking to people ever since. Great. Okay. Well, that is the UVA connection is a nice one because we did such a lot of work there. Yeah. Yeah. And we used to, <laughs> we both actually used to work in Salt Lake City School District and that's how we oh, okay. originally yeah. got connected with UVA and, and that work and had some right, interactions with work. public impact. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you all for contacting us and being interested in opportunity culture. I'm excited to get a chance to talk to you about it. So. Excellent. Will you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I started my career as a high school English teacher in a school district just outside of Chicago called Maine Township. And um, when I look back on those years, I think about being a first year teacher and being assigned to a classroom of ninth graders who were at a fourth grade reading level. Mm. And so I just think of how ill prepared I was to um, teach those students and to get them where they needed to be. I think the expectation was that I was going to, in one year, be able to prepare them for 10th grade. And I was just so ill-prepared. So I think that that, at that point, I got really interested in this idea of how can we better support and train teachers who are on the job um, to help them be more successful in their classroom. So a lot of the work that I've done since then has been more on the implementation and policy side, but I think it got started in those early days when I was overwhelmed and ill-prepared <laughs> and wanting to make sure other folks don't have that same, aren't as ill-prepared as I was. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for the kids that I taught when I first started. Exactly. <laughs> I look back like... and I'm like, oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think that, I think that it never goes away. 
right? That feeling of wanting to make a difference and to have success with our kids. Nobody is coming to school and trying to be a teacher because they want to fail their kids. And I think no. that there's kind of that rub, that, that dissonance that teachers have, that they know they're working hard, they're, they know they're trying to do everything they can, and and there's this sort of feeling of, is it enough, right? Am I, am I making enough of an impact on, on what they need for their future? Right, and it's such a complex job. I think that's something I've come to appreciate over the years as I've thought so much about how we support and train teachers, and I think it's one of the most complex jobs that we could ask someone to do, to be so good at so many different things, you know, whether it's like being able to plan ahead to where you want a group of people to be in nine months and do the backward planning that's necessary to get them there, to lead a classroom, to have the interpersonal skills, to have the leadership skills, um, to have the drive, to have the ambition, the achievement. I mean, all the things that get wrapped up in being an excellent teacher, it's such a highly complex job. And I'll mention also like the compensation doesn't match (laughs) the complexity. So that's another part of what I've spent a lot of my career thinking about is how can we help compensate teachers for the great work that they're doing and in a fair way. So So how does um, public impact play into that work? So I've been at public impact for a really long time. Basically after I left teaching, this was the organization that I landed at. So I've been there about 23 years. And I guess our mission at Public Impact is to improve education dramatically for all students, but especially low-income students, students of color, and other students whose needs historically have not been well met. And I I love our mission and I it's a really it's a really ambitious one, <laughs> as we are noting in our country this week. So yeah. we're a team of 30 plus folks and most of us are former teachers. And all come at it with a desire to, particularly to, to influence education in a way that helps students who haven't been well served and, and broadly defined um, what that means. So, and we all have our own stories and we all have our own reasons for doing this work. So, that's great. When you're thinking about the opportunity culture piece of the work that you do, can you describe that for our listeners so they have a better sense about that work too? Sure. So, opportunity culture started in 2009 and it's basic the basic idea is how do we take the great teachers that we know schools already have and extend their reach to many more students and how do we pay them for the extended work that they're doing the leadership that they're taking on within regular school budgets um one and that's i'm going to mention the pay a little bit because that's part of the importance for us is that um, the work that they do be compensated and that it not be based on a grant or something that's going to go away because we've all, as former teachers, experienced that. So we want to, one of the most difficult parts about this work is figuring out how to pay for it, honestly. Um, and so that's been an important piece. But basically, the great teachers, you know, the ones that help their students achieve well more than a standard, you know, year's worth of achievement every year are Typically, there's not m- many places for them to go in their career without becoming an administrator, as you and your listeners well know. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of opportunity culture is essentially to create a career path for teachers so that they can stay teaching, stay close to kids, support other teachers, and not need to necessarily go into administration, but also, again, be paid significantly for that work. So the, this idea first took – the first year that we actually implemented was in 2013 – 
in several large school districts, and we learned a lot <laughs> those early years. We learned a lot in years since. We're really a, one of the things I'm proud of is that I think we are a learning organization. <laughs> we overhaul things when they don't work, and we start over again. But basically, I think the thing that's made us very successful is that the work is essentially a bottom-up model. So we work first with a district and then with individual schools. And at the individual school level, we work with a principal and a team of teachers to try to figure out how to deploy teacher leaders in that particular building. So it doesn't look the same from school to school. So if a school, for example, has, you know, is particularly struggling, as a lot of schools are with, you know, reading scores in third grade, or they're feeling like their kids just aren't prepared for higher order math in fifth grade, then they might make sure to make to to have a teacher leader assigned to that those particular grade levels with a small team of teachers that they're supporting. So the heart of an opportunity culture, I'll say, is is this role called a multi-classroom leader, which is a teacher who has a really strong record of student success, and there's a very rigorous selection process to get these roles. And that teacher then leads a small team of teachers, usually five or six, sometimes up to eight, but no more to um, to help them as a team be more successful with their students. So it's really a joint. There's The MCL leads the team, but there's a lot of um, input from the team on what role they want to take on the team, how they want their, how they believe their students will be successful. So it's really creating collaborative teams across the school. And so the principal then has a more distributed leadership model. So they can then turn to these MCLs as their you know, leaders in within the school and make sure that whatever their vision and, and whatever they want to accomplish in the school is filtered through and supported by a collaborative team of teacher leaders. So nice. I will pause there if you have questions. No, that's great. <laughs> I, I'm I, wondering, oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just curious about these people that you say MCLs and what did you learn, especially about selecting these people? Because I think it has to be a very specific, you know, kind of person. Uh, to be able to work with their colleagues, to be able to support them, to be able to help lead them um, successfully. And uh, I'm, I'm curious when you said, oh, we learned so much. I'm curious about what you learned about <laughs> who, who could be a good selection, you know, person to be selected for this. And maybe who would you not choose? What did you learn that way? Yeah, I think the first thing, the most important thing is credibility, right? Because I think teaching in general is a very flat profession. We don't tend to like step out in front of our colleagues and say, we're better than you are, or we're, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a very flat profession. So I think that credibility is important. So the selection process does have to have a strong data component in the sense of has this person, does this person have what it takes to move students forward in terms of achievement? Mm -hmm. Do they know their stuff when it comes to math or science or biology? Like they have to know their stuff. And so the selection process really values and privileges that as part of it. But that's only one piece because you could have great teachers who know their stuff who actually don't work particularly well mm -hmm. with their colleagues and don't have what I would call like a servant mentality around like mm -hmm. I'm here to serve and help everyone in the building get better. And so we, we actually really value a selection process called the behavior event interview, which is a um, competency based interview selection process that looks at these underlying qualities that people bring to their lives and their success and their jobs, things like achievement drive and their ability to impact and influence other people their ability to have really strong interpersonal skills, their humility. And I would say that if we've learned one thing over time, it's that 
maybe we thought that this that the data piece and knowing that they could know their stuff was more important and i think what we've seen over time is that the second piece is, is is even more important than we might have thought and that's a part that districts really really like it's a very powerful interview technique where you get to know people really well and a lot of our districts tend to they start out doing this just with opportunity culture roles but then choose to hire principals using this you know looking for these traits and hire senior administrators looking for these traits. I'm going to do some of that work next week in Midland, Texas, hiring, you know, senior administrators. So I think that's what we've learned is that you have to pay attention to the who, um, especially these traits that we think are so important. Yeah, so yeah, crucial. Tr- Tracy and I both participated in some behavior event interviews as... Um, when we were in Salt Lake. Yeah, both on the interviewee side and the interviewer side. So mm-hmm. um, we can speak to their value. Yes, that was one of our work that we did, early work that we did with with um, University of Virginia was to work with them on, on building the competency selection process. It's a really powerful, it's essentially letting people tell their story. Yeah. And through their story, you get to know them really well. Right. And it's hard to hide I mean, in an interview, um, (laughs) in an interview, you can have some real pat answers and it may not get to the heart of what you're all about, but in a BEI, a behavior event interview, you can really get deep and find out where, what a person has done, really actually done. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. it's really valuable. Um, So uh, can you talk about some of the other structures? You talked about MCLs. There are other structures that opportunity culture embraces. What are some of those that that you've seen take shape uh, for increasing yeah, so, the reach of teachers? Yeah, so thank you for asking. So these MCLs are not alone. You know, they lead teams of teachers, but there may be teachers on those teams who are also ready for a leadership position. So districts often, working with districts, we often create sort of leadership positions within those MCL teams where they, like a master reach teacher, for example, might take on an extra responsibility, maybe coaching one other teacher, maybe doing data review for the team, maybe helping with lesson planning, whatever that team seems to really need, Another other people can step into leadership. We're also really excited. We're starting to do work with teacher residents on these teams. Mm. So teachers who are still in their training yeah. um, process coming in and I mean, what we're offering or what these districts and schools are offering is the opportunity to work on a team led by an excellent teacher. And what the the residents are offering is their enthusiasm and their drive to be good teachers. And, and, and so I think the districts are really, and also it really acts as a pipeline for the district. We also have paraprofessional roles. Um, so there are paraprofessionals on these teams who support the entire team with, maybe they lead small groups, maybe they can actually lead instruction independently if the MCL has prepared them to do so. So kind of a supercharged teacher assistant, I would say. Um, so the, And then principals also obviously play a really strong role in something that we haven't implemented but are really excited about trying to work with is maybe having principals that lead multiple schools. So like a multi-school leader. Oh, wow. <laughs> we talk about a multi-classroom leader, but we're excited about a multi-school leader. And if you had several opportunity culture schools being, you know, with MCLs in place and their teams, then it would, would it be possible for a principal to lead two of those schools or three of those schools? So, wow. so there's That's roles for principals, for teachers, for, and for paraprofessionals and teacher residents. If you, if you had a leadership role where they were supervising two or three schools, do you see that you would have another administrator at the building and that this person would be kind of 
providing that coaching and mentoring? Or do you see that the teacher leaders, the MCLs would be able to keep things moving forward? What, what is your format you're thinking? I think our vision that we've had, and we have talked to some districts about this, is that there would be potentially like a principal in training uh-huh. at the building yeah. or even an administrator early in their career. So um, I think the there's complex financial implications because you, you know, in order to pay the multi-school leader more, right. you know, where is that money going to come from? But I think that we've had conversations about different ways to craft that, but I think it's an idea that has a lot of promise. So, because mm. so, it's also very hard to, I mean, a lot of districts are, of course, are struggling with yeah. finding principals and hiring principals. Right, so right. taking advantage of the great principals you have, how could we do that better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I think it's so interesting because um, I've known a principal who actually implemented some MCLs in her school, and um, uh, she believed in it 100% and had some district support for it, and um, then uh, she left and those things went away. Um, Mm. And uh, I just wonder, you know, what – what is the readiness of a district or a school for embracing an opportunity culture? You know, do you have some kind of a readiness test or assessment to make sure that schools are, are going to be able to do for a district? <laughs> because I just think that um, this district wasn't ready obviously for this because it was isolated one school. There was really no interest in learning from the successes of that one school to try to build on the concept to other places. Um, So, and then, you know, it just kind of went back to our traditional model. Um, Yeah. So I just wonder, what do you, what do you see in districts that are ready to take this on or schools that are ready to take this on? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just because sustainability is so hard in education, mm-hmm. you know, as you mentioned, like whether if a superintendent leaves, what does that do? You know, come, and a new superintendent comes in with a different vision or a principal leaves and comes in with a different vision. So I do think we start with the senior most leader in the district, the superintendent, and knowing that that superintendent understands the work wants the work to come to his or her district and also can make a a really coherent argument for why it will be better with this work. And in districts that where we have that senior superintendent support, I would say that's, that's like a, you know, one of our readiness factors is knowing that the superintendent is really behind it. And then I think really, I mean, we, we basically work because the work is fairly complex and involves, you know, compensation and accountability and all these different areas of the district, trying to bake it in as much as possible in different departments in the course of the first year. I think we see, we can tell a lot by how well that goes, um, whether the, you know, the right, the people that need to be there are all around the table and they're really invested and they're um, engaged. It is a big readiness factor for us, I would say. Sure. Um, and how those conversations go. If people are honest about like, this is going to change my job and I don't know that I love that, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that I'm ready for this. And I think those kind of like, if there's honesty around the, you know, what we're trying to do and there's a vision for why we're doing it. Um, I think that that can really help at the district level. I think that I have also seen schools, interestingly enough, where we do bake this into the school budget. So, you know, the, these aren't, again, paid for through a district line item or an outside grant. It's really the school's budget. So I've actually seen a lot of schools where the principals turned over, but the work continued because 
the, the MCLs themselves and their teams were so strong. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe through multiple principal changes, honestly, um, the MCLs kind of hold the school together and hold it, you know, through the changes that are happening above them. So I've definitely seen schools where the work has gone away when a principal or has reduced in power when a principal change happened, but I've also seen the opposite. So I think, I guess what we try to do is, is bake it in at the, at the level of the school in ways that can help it to hold on as long as it, you know, is, mm-hmm. is showing value. So Nice. The school that I'm at, they have a model of having an instructional coach. And in this district, mm-hmm. they have a coach who's there full-time, works in all subject areas for all grades. And I was thinking about that baking in. I love how you phrased that because it sort of is trying to solidify in all the corners of all the the parties, so to speak, that have to buy into it. Um, but I'm just curious if you were to be able to move in, I'm assuming, oh, that probably means you don't have an instructional coach then, or am I wrong? Do you, do you see that there's MCLs and instructional coaches in buildings providing that support for teachers in some of the districts you're working in? That's a great question and one that often comes up because those instructional coaches. So one thing to say, when we designed Opportunity Culture, we did a lot of teacher focus groups and a lot of talking to instructional coaches about what was working in the work that they were doing and what wasn't working. And some of those sort of key tenets of the work that we do come out of those conversations where, and one of the things we heard a lot was, I have too many teachers. I can't reach yeah. them all. I'm not see, I'm seeing them every three weeks. I'm seeing them every four weeks. Yeah. I'm not, I think there's a, you know, the evidence and research behind the instructional coach role is often designed is not very strong. So mm-hmm. we tried to, I think when you, when I talked about sort of small teams, that's, and being able to do job embedded professional support day in and day out, like an MCL might be in a teacher's classroom every day or twice a day. Yeah. Um, and so, I, and is also teaching alongside them, doing co-teaching and modeling and those kind of things. So it's, it's a much more intensive of, of level of support than you often see with an instructional coach, not because the instructional coach doesn't want to or couldn't, they just don't have the time and their schedule is yeah. not arranged that way. Yeah. So I would say in the first year, we often see, we, you might have MCLs working alongside an instructional coach as long as their jobs are really differentiated and there's real clear role clarity. Um, but over time, we see those folks often applying to be MCLs, honestly, mm-hmm. um, because there, there's so much, I mean, the pays, you know, can be more and the responsibilities are more uh, appealing which is one reason we designed it that way, you know, so those, those folks would want these jobs. So over time we see, we might, you might continue to see district level coaches who are responsible for curriculum and things like that, that are, that need to be, you know, spread across several schools, like a new curriculum gets rolled out. How is that going to happen? But Mm -hmm. less, less embedded at the school level and at the classroom level. Right. And I've actually read some research that says that, our instructional coach positions, um, they tend to spend so little time on actually supporting teachers on instruction. They get pulled into all sorts of other duties and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Testing and... Yeah, yeah, that have very little to do with building teacher capacity or helping students achieve at higher rates. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it might be worth trying something different because, I mean, this is kind of a problem across the country is that coaches spend... I mean, I've even read something as low as 14% of their time on <laughs> working with teachers mm. in classrooms to improve instruction. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah, I will be honest and say I think it's time to rethink. And it's a lot of money, and we've also taken the best people away from students. <laughs> so oh, another thing to say right. about the MCL role that I really appreciate, and I mentioned credibility earlier, is that they also continue to teach students. So in some cases, MCLs still have a classroom of record. Um, in other cases, they don't. But what they do is they push in or pull out groups of kids, or, and again, they co-teach. So their their support for a team teacher is around per, a particular set of students. Like, you know, this isn't just a general strategy I'm teaching you. This is what I think Jason will really learn from and appreciate. You know, like this is a this is how I would work with that particular student. So I think that that's another thing we do with our instructional coach roles is we pull them further and further away from not only teachers yeah. but also students. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And how do how do you balance all of that with the same budget? So you said that these folks. Uh, still maintain teaching roles and they are able to maybe do some co-teaching and some model teaching and things that we might see from coaches now and um, that there might be a para-pro that's paraprofessional mm-hmm. that's working alongside the team of MCLs. So how does that all work within the budget? Like how does that happen? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's probably the hardest part of the work that we do because you don't get something for nothing. (laughs) So that's where investment comes in. Like the school has to really believe and be invested in this idea because they're going to have to give something up to pay the stipends for these teacher leaders and also to create their, the release time for them. And so the way that we do that is first look at all the different parts of your budget. And it could be that you convert, for example, an instructional coaching position into an MCL position. So you could take a, you know, a position in the school. It could be that you can, you convert a vacancy um, to, and use the money from the vacancy to pay for the stipends and to pay for the paraprofessional. So it could be that you look at your title one budget. You decide that, you know, rather than spend $65,000 on this, you would rather spend 30 of that on, paying for two MCL stipends. So it's, right. it's there's a lot of budget um, work that gets done, but all of those decisions are made at the school level. So they're the ones determining how the, the budget will be reworked. And I think that's a big power shift to have teachers at the table talking about how money is spent. Um, yeah. We see a lot of, I feel like that's one of the kind of more interesting parts of the role is trying to shift the responsibility to give teachers that professional responsibility for things that they often don't get to be at the table about. Well, and I'm, I'm going to jump in and say in some districts, not just the teachers, but there are places where administration doesn't have the authority <laughs> to make decisions that way either. So they may want to yes. create this kind of a stipend or a position, but you know, HR says, I'm sorry, we don't have that job description or that's not allowed. So you really, mm-hmm. I like what you were saying about, we sort of have to start at the top to make sure that there's support working working their way down um, to make one sure it maintains. One of my favorites, one of the, my favorites, one of the superintendents I've gotten to work with who I appreciate so much is Dr. Anthony Jackson in Vance County, North Carolina, who I remember telling me like, that I was making all sorts of assumptions about what principals knew about the budgets <laughs> <laughs> and how I probably needed to, to think more about how to, how to, how to help principals understand their, how these budget streams work from the state to their buildings and those kind of things. So right. That's good interesting. That, yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. Um, I have a question about um, some little things cause we do focus on little things. Mm-hmm. Um, leaders could maybe do to introduce the concept of opportunity culture into their schools, maybe in some um, 
lighter way. So opportunity culture light, you know, how can they, without maybe having the investment of a superintendent, how can they maybe still put some of these principles into place? So it's a really good question. And I guess my first thought is it's, I don't want to overstate the importance of all these different pieces, because if they don't exist, it makes it really hard for the work to have the punch that it can have. But I, but that's a, but it is a really great question. And I think, I think that what, Parts, I think that the idea that you could you could have a team of folks at a building who were looking at the budget and making decisions about how you were going to spend your precious resources and precious dollars to make sure that the, the, that the strongest um, teachers in the building are getting the support that they need to potentially help other teachers be successful. I think that's one thing is like, could you as a building think about budgeting differently? And I know that that's difficult to do, but I think it's not impossible. And then I also think that there's a lot that schools can do schedule-wise to be more creative about how they free up teacher time to spend time in each other's classrooms. So whether it's a teacher leader who's you know, going in and supporting a brand new teacher or whatever it is, I think there's a lot that schools could do if they step back from their schedules um, and thought about like, does a t- if a t- like a third grade teacher, if that teacher how could we create even 45 minutes of release time for that, for that third grade teacher to be able to go in and support a colleague? Um, You know, what would that look like? Would that look like a paraprofessional being in the room during that time? Would that look like, you know, having those kids be in specials during that time? Would that look like lining up lunch periods across the building? So everybody's free at the same time. I think that oftentimes schedules feel like they're the way they are because they've always been that way. But I Mm -hmm. think that's a way to think about it. Um, I also, I mean, I also will say like, I think, the most important thing is having a vision for where you want the building to go (laughs) and where you want kids to go and making sure that that is communicated throughout the building. So I think in the best and strongest opportunity culture schools, you know, everybody there knows why they're there and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, And that can happen anywhere. So. Sure. And I was even, even just imagining Jim that, you know, you have your leadership team, right? And if you could restructure the definition of what that leadership team does, and if you were allowed or able to be able to bring in even a para that uh, is skilled, could work with a with the teacher's classrooms that are on that leadership team, then that leadership team could, you know, stagger the times that they're providing support for their colleagues. Something right. like that. Uh, I'd love to explore. That, that could be kind of cool. Right. And I mean, I know as an elementary teacher, you know, there are blocks of time, not enough probably, but there are blocks of time when the kids go to PE or when yeah. they go to computer lab and you could maybe compensate teachers to do some of that work um, to support teachers in the building when their kids are, are occupied in other ways. So yeah, I definitely think it's doable. That's making me think of one other thing, which you, you mentioned of the, what we often call the instructional leadership team in a school. We sometimes in opportunity culture schools, we call it a team of leaders. Mm-hmm. And so, re, which is a way of signaling, like this is a team that does something different than what they might've used to do, yeah. which might've been a lot of operational kind of conversations around right. like, when are we going to have the fair or when are we going to do that? But how can we turn this into a team of folks who are talking about, how our students are succeeding in this building and what evidence and data we're seeing yeah. at a, at a more senior level. So yeah. true, Language. more distributed leadership. Language matters for sure. Mm-hmm. Here's a, here's a final question for you. If you could jump into a time machine and go back to your younger self, when you first were getting into education, what advice would you give your younger self about the little things that matter? Well, I guess I would, um, 
this has been a really hard week for our country. Um, and it was already hard. (laughs) So I've, you know, I've, I've had a heavy heart this week and I guess my advice would be to be, to go back and to be hopeful and persistent in working for change. I think, I think it sometimes feels like as an educator, you have a front row seat to not only the problems that your kids are struggling with, but the problems the world is struggling with. And I think that can feel very overwhelming, but I think that what I have been able to see now that I've been doing this for so long is how much change a small and persistent group of people can have. And so I think if I had to go back to my younger self, I would actually be pretty hopeful that, you know, you can make change over time if you show persistence. And, and I've seen this, you know, I've seen this, we work in huge urban districts like Chicago and Baltimore, and we also work in really small rural districts in Arizona, North Carolina, Texas, in Indianapolis. I mean, so I've just seen this happen so many different places where teachers determined groups of small, small groups of teachers can change their schools and can help change their communities. So I believe that that's possible. That's <laughs> you, awesome. You sound like Margaret Mead. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't feel this week like right. that, but I think it is possible. I mean, I really, it is such an extraordinary privilege from where I sit to get to travel around the country and visit with teachers in all these different places and environments and with their different struggles, but also see how, how passionate they are about what they're doing. So where can educators go to learn more about opportunity culture and public impact? So we opportunityculture.org is our website and there's a blog on that website that, that highlights a lot of what's happening in schools. And there's also a section of the website that has columns written by teachers and principals and opportunities culture schools. So I would first send them there. Um, I think that that's the best place to go. And, and generally, I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of is teachers really like opportunity culture. 99% of the MCLs we surveyed at the end of this year said they wanted this to continue in their schools. Wow. And 86% of all educators in the schools mm. said that they wanted it to, to continue. So there's something great about what it is about this work. And so I think I do encourage folks to go and read the stories of other teachers who've been doing it and to think through like what, what parts of it or what elements of it they could adopt in their own practice. That is so awesome. Thank you so much. And we, we so appreciate you taking time out of your out of your weekend to come and visit with us and uh, speak with us and share some of your ideas. It's kind of inspiring for me again because I'm remembering back and, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that part. And, and this is a great thing. And uh, looking at already, how can we restructure? Because I think we're all going to be facing some budget challenges this coming year. Mm-hmm. And how yep. we use that, yep. you know, the, the remaining funds – whatever's left on the table, uh, it will be important that we continue to support our teachers. And you've given me some really good ideas. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. this might be and a And leverage really... the great people that yeah. are already there. Yeah, mm-hmm. this might be a really good time for people to reprioritize. And I've heard lots of talk about, you know, making education different when we come back and not just going back to right. the way it was. And this is a great set of tools that you've created for, for doing just that. So thank you, Lucy. You're welcome. Well, it's been a privilege to do the work and to talk to you all. So thank you so much. And have a good rest of your weekend. Thank, thank you. You, so much. you too. You too. <laughs> talk to you later. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.